Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 16 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. I make disgusting films and write about films and a whole bunch of stuff related to films. And joining us tonight, you know him best as the director of the Shudder exclusive film Beyond the Gates. Joining us tonight, Mr. Jackson Stewart. Jackson, hello. Hi, how's it going? Very good. Very man. well, thank you. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> Uh, you're very welcome. I actually had no idea uh, Beyond the Gates was Shutter exclusive over there. So that's oh, that... uh, you just <laughs> you just <laughs> informed me of something I I had utterly no clue about. So that's that's thank how you. that's how it's built over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Although you wow. can although okay. you can you can buy it. You can buy yeah, it on I, DVD I, because I I revisited it again today. Yeah, I so. own it as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Oh, right on, right on. But the film that we're here to talk about first and foremost, you've picked <laughs> an interesting one. Jackson, I had not heard of this yeah. before. I, might, I hadn't seen it, but I hadn't heard of it. Um, uh, so you've gone for 1987's White of the Eye. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I sure did. Uh, generally, like, well, yeah, first off, I normally do kind of like just kind of get a little bit of background for why you chose it. Yeah, so this was a really interesting movie because I heard about it a few years ago and they were playing it at the uh, silent movie theater in, here in town. And they were doing this thing called the United States of Horror, and they were picking different movies, different horror movies for each sort of state. And, uh, you know, for Arizona, which is where I grew up, they picked White of the Eye. And I was like, what the fuck is White of the Eye? I was like, I've never heard of this. <laughs> and it was, um, it was, you know, it was made in 1987, which is, is still kind of in my, my sweet spot for uh, horror movies. And uh, I missed the screening, but I ended up catching it later on, I think through um, Shout Factory had put it out on Blu-ray and I just blind bought it. But uh, yeah, I watched it and I was like, it takes place in Tucson, which is my my hometown. And I truly never seen anything like it. And I just was <laughs> like, I was completely obsessed with it for like months and months after watching it. Like I, I watched it, I think five times or something within the, the, the first month that I watched it. And I just kept reading about it. And I was just like, I've literally never seen a movie like this before. And, um, you know, it just, it made a very big impact on me. And, uh, I found a lot of people that I've shown it to just absolutely hate it. And like, <laughs> I don't think it did terribly well, um, with critics or even, you know, box office wise when it was released, there's like a trailer for it that's floating around that's very um, kind of deceptive for like what the movie is. It just makes it look like sort of a generic thriller. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean that it's just, it's a movie I've been very fascinated by and that, that was why I, I wanted to discuss it further with you guys. And you did, you did pick it pretty much instantly when we were talking about this. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so sorry, just, yeah. just, just, just uh, for kind of for clarity. So how long ago was it that you came across it for the first time? 
I watched it in, I think it was 2015. Okay. It was like toward, toward the end of 2015. So it, it was very recent. This will sound incredibly pretentious, but it, it is really rare that there's one of these movies made in that era that I haven't seen mm-hmm. or heard of right. or yeah. read something about. Donald Camel, uh, co-directed performance with Nicholas Rogue and he's he's a phenomenal director in his own right but yeah that that was a, that was also a very big draw for me watching you watch it Mitch was quite was quite fun you had a look of just sheer confusion almost the entire time <laughs> I wouldn't say the entire time I would say like um uh, and we can get into it um but yeah there was a lot of things about it that I found on first watch and like I say this is super fresh I watched this today um oh, wow. Uh, and yeah, I f- I, there was a lot of things about it that I find to be kind of disorientating, but we can get into that. Yeah, um, sure. Before we do, though, Jackson, we make everyone that comes on uh, the show do this one thing. Every now and again, people out there will listen to these without having seen the films. Generally, obviously, we kind of recommend if you can hunt them down. And quite can, right, yeah. it's accessible in the UK. Auto Video have got a, a double disc Blu-ray package out of white of the eye, so uh, you can you can find that. Um, but yeah, for the benefit of anyone who is listening without having seen the film, we kind of task the guest with, we put 30 seconds on the clock and ask them to do their best to sum up the plot of the film. So with a count in, are you ready to do that? Oh man. <laughs> that should be, that should uh, yeah, be an interesting I'll, one. I'll give him my best shot. Yeah. Okay, right. Here we go. Three, two, one. So White of the Eye centers around a, uh, a, a you know, a, a husband and, and a father who has a successful stereo installing business and uh, some darker impulses uh, that he's he's kind of um, repressed as he's gotten into his married life and, and uh, fatherhood. And uh, those end up coming out in some pretty disturbing, uh, gruesome ways over the, the course of the film. <laughs> there. 30, 30 seconds disappears fast, doesn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. But, um, well, but yeah, I would say like it's, it's, it's an overview. And yeah, pretty, yeah. not bad, not bad. We've had some, we've had some, disa- we've had some disastrous efforts with that before. <laughs> like, like some absolute hellers. But um, yeah, I think we should just jump right in because there's quite a lot to there's quite a lot to unpack, especially early on. I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say, yeah. The first thing though, I will, I do want to say is it starts with that good old Canon Films logo, which I really miss. Yep. <laughs> you love <laughs> a good Canon Films logo. Yeah, I love the I love an old Canon Films logo. It gets me all excited. Yeah, it's it's always a strong start for a movie. But then, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of hard to talk about this one. It kind of starts with a kind of mishmash of stock footage of eagles flying around. Uh, it launches into an almost Argento-like murder scene. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's very that's very much like a giallo. Yeah. In that opening, and then there's there's like the fish flopping around, which I think is is really disturbing. And yeah, it's so weird. It's, that's such a weird yeah, decision. It's like swimming around in the meat juice too, which I, I think is also really disgusting. And yeah, it's just all that slow mo and like the glass shattering. And he picks some really unusual camera angles to film yeah. that like POV stuff through, because a lot of it, the the woman is not in focus, which I think I think there's a deeper reason for that within the movie, but. It's like you see him kind of closing in on her and it's yeah. like her head is obscured. You don't really get a good sense of her. And he's just kind of rushing through the house, you know, kind of going in, in all directions in this sort of <laughs> nervous, frenetic energy. And mm-hmm. um, 
it's uh, it, it's a really eerie scene. Like mm-hmm. I, I remember watching that. And I'm like, okay, I've not seen you know a, a a murder photographed in this way before, and it's just it creates a really unsettling effect mm-hmm. for the the opening of the movie, and it's just it's totally explosive. And I kind of thought the same when I was watching it earlier. I thought as I have never seen a murder scene like this before. Yeah, and one of the reasons that we're all here is because we've all seen a lot of murder scenes. And, <laughs> yeah, and like, and, and I remember thinking that it was like you're right. I mean, the way it's put together with the kind of the close ups of the eyes and all the kind of POV stuff is really frenetic. But also, just when you get to the actual murder, everything about it is designed to be disorientating and totally chaotic, and it worked for me in that way. Mm-hmm. Because I remember just thinking it was like I kind of I kind of couldn't look away from it because everything about the way it was presented was so jarring. Yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to think of like what else was, you know, in like the sort of like thriller horror space was was being made around this time. But it, it, it doesn't really feel like there's a a solid equivalent of it. Yeah. You know, I oh, mean, no. to me, it's, even to this day, it's like I have a really hard time finding like a, a companion piece for this movie as far as like doing like a double feature. I mean, like the only. <laughs> The only one I think would be close is maybe like, you know, the Scorsese Cape Fear. I think there's some okay. there's a, mm-hmm. a, a few kind of commonalities between them, at least in like how they're they're shot and just that really, um, you know, dynamic uh, kind of in your face camera movement that they're they're pulling off. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's like the way it opens is is super jarring. They have like the whole all the transitions of Tucson and that like weird um, bleach bypass effect that they do over the footage that makes it look incredibly grainy. Yeah, and it's set. It's um the film is composed by two of the members of Pink Floyd. It's Nick Mason and I can't remember the other guy's name. But um, it's like the score is super weird. You know, it's like (laughs) it's just not like the standard that you'd expect for this kind of like Southwestern thriller. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the opening music is just super bright. And like it's like almost something you'd hear in like a country music bar, (laughs) which is very weird to me. But yeah, you know, and then you guys can kind of go into it. I love the score. I think the score. Absolutely. Is, I think the score is brilliant. The, the score is another thing that I think is deliberately designed to feel jarring and strange, and it works in that way pretty much front to back. I think. Um, yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, we come out of that, and it's weird because obviously, like that is kind of so chaotic, and mm-hmm. that you we kind of come straight out of that and cut to kind of this relative. I don't want to say domestic bliss, but it's you get your protagonist and your Paul and just the family. Yeah, the uh, whites. Paul, <laughs> yeah. if you like, yeah. yeah, sorry, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Paul and Joan White and their daughter Danielle, uh, who's a weird fucking kid. So weird. Yeah. I mean, it's also too. It's like you look at um, David Keith and Kathy Moriarty. Kathy Moriarty, I think, is just stunningly beautiful. But yeah. like, you look at the two of them, and you're like, how did that kid come out? <laughs> of <this too?" laughs> Like, I. I I hate like picking on you know ch- child actors or whatever, but like, but we're going she just does not look anything like either of them, you know. And no. it's it, it's uh, I'm kind of curious if she was maybe like a local hire or uh, well, how they yeah, found yeah, yeah. her. There's a lot of really interesting stories about Donald Camel when he was uh, making this this movie. You know, there, there's a few extras on the at least on the shout 
or Scream Factory Blu-ray over here where the one of the actors um, who who plays his best friend that he uh, you know, David Keith had stolen uh, Kathy Moriarty from. Oh, yeah. Mm. He was saying like he didn't really give any kind of direction and he would start explaining stuff in the movie and he had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. Like there was um, <laughs> this is getting a little bit ahead, but there was a scene where he said they they spent like weeks and weeks developing these uh, contact lenses that were supposed to cost like five or ten thousand dollars that was going to have like a cloud in the like the pupil of the eye. Right. Okay. And so said it was supposed to be like the culmination of the entire movie was they would do this like macro lens shot on his eye and there would be a cloud in it. And he was explaining it to the actor and he was like, OK, but like, what is the significance of that? Like, why? Why does his eye turn into this cloud? And he absolutely couldn't explain it to him. <laughs> like, he had no idea what it meant. And so, uh, you know, I, I think there's something really fascinating when, you know, some of these guys who are a little unbalanced make these kinds of movies, because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Donald Camel committed suicide in, I think, in 98 or 99. Oh, wow, okay. And uh, there's another messed up thing, but... His mode of death or his his mode of suicide is actually in this movie, which is another very, <laughs> very chilling thing about it. What, what? Well, I think you need to expand well, on yeah, that, Jackson. What are we talking I think about you've here? got to expand on that. So when he um, when David Keith is holding that woman's head underwater in the bathtub, yeah. he holds the mirror up to her yeah. right? uh, so she can like look at herself die. This is even weirder if you can believe that. But with his wife, um, I th- there was China some. Kong. Yeah, yeah. Who she's the co-writer of this movie. Yeah, she's too. in it. She but, she works. She's the she works in the the kind of cafeteria. The there's like a cafe or a, yeah. a kind of diner. Yeah, she's working there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he convinced his wife that he was like, okay, I don't want to live anymore. And so he he got her to to shoot him through the top of his skull with like a with like a thirty eight or something, and uh, she, he had her hold up a mirror to him so he could watch himself die. Oh my and, god! Fuck! Yeah. Fuck! hell. Yeah, and I I remember finding that out. I think after I'd watched the movie, my friend uh, Phil Blankenship told me about that. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, "What the fuck?" I was like, "This is," I was like, "Okay, this very much comes from an unsound mind," which yeah. I think is why the movie has that sort of uh, effect that it does. Yeah, I, I went off on a big tangent there. I just no, I, no, I that that's uh, that's die. valuable material. That's worth including. That yeah. has uh, that has changed the tone <laughs> of this conversation quite dramatically. Well, the the thing is, I mean, like that that sequence. I mean, obviously, like you say, we're jumping ahead a fair bit, but like that sequence was. Um, I had it marked down in the notes that I took when I was watching it that that was the kind of scariest moment in the film for me, and the most yeah. disturbing moment. Yeah, very much so. And it, that that is now that is now true, like tenfold. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's also too. It's like if you look at how long it took from the making of this movie to him doing that, and then thinking about how much longer that was probably in the guy's head. Yeah. You know, it's like that guy had been fantasizing about that for over a decade. Wow, you know, and it's shit. like it's a really disturbing window into someone's mind and uh it's very rare you kind of get that 
you get that out of a filmmaker, you know, where you get to like know some intimate detail about them and in through one of their movies. And uh, yeah, you know, it's like that's a big part of why I think it has that that eerie, surreal effect that it does. That is insane. And here was me. I was just about to lighten things up as well by talking about the fact that. (laughs) I was gonna <laughs> by, by talking about the fact that Danielle, when we first see meet Danielle, she's been sent home from school because she seems to have this habit of going around socking people in the back. Yeah, I I, yeah. I, I thought that was really funny because um, when she says it's like I socked him in the back, and it's not just that she's like going around hitting people because Joan, her response to her is like, what have I told you about socking people in the bank? Yeah, that's like, that's her thing. It's like such a weirdly specific admonishment. Yeah, well, it's also, I, I like that they set up this idea that, you know, the, the sort of like violence from, you know, the dad is like rolling down onto her, how mm. it's sort of like a, a cyclical thing that's like passed on through generations. You know, it's like a nice foreshadowing for for that because most of the movie i mean these are this is obviously like hugely spoilery so it's like you don't know he's killing all these people from from the beginning you know it it is a mystery and you do uncover it over the course of the movie um you do sense there's something very wrong with him but it's like they don't (laughs) you know it's it's not made explicit until you know a little a little ways through the runtime yeah no totally but also not just the fact that the dad's got um that the dad's kind of passing stuff on perhaps on his daughter but so is the mum and there's a point where she's trying to kind of direct Danielle down a different road by talking about what it what it is to be antisocial. And then we see her in flashback, pretty much doing exactly the same thing and being pretty antisocial when she distraught like she puts the cigarette out in the eight track machine and pours her drink into the guy's eight track. It's kind of the whole thing's kind of cyclical. It seems absolutely. It's I I, I don't I don't want to keep like commandeering this this thing. But did you? Oh, that's fine. Uh, uh, whatever feels you right, can man. steamroll over this whole thing as much as you like so <laughs> like, don't worry about well, that yeah i mean it's like I, I think it's interesting too how you know on paper this guy sort of has like the sort of like picturesque american dream life where he's got you know the beautiful wife he has a kid he's got a good career yeah, you know, obviously obviously house. doing obviously doing something that he identifiably loves as well mm-hmm. yeah Totally. And it's like, you know, you see he's really good at his job, like when he goes in there and he's like getting into all the the minutia and specifics of like what kind of system the guy wants and everything. And it's like it's still not enough to kind of sate this like destructive nature that he he has within him, you know, and it's like you see it. You know, through a lot of the flashback scenes with his friends where, like, they go and, you know, they have that hunting scene where he goes and, like, kills that deer. And then he's, like, smearing the blood all over (laughs) his face. And then he goes and, like, kisses his friend. And you're just like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? Like, it's, um, it's, it's really fascinating to see that these kind of, like, external happinesses or, or signs of success are not enough to really like fix what's wrong with him internally. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's some really like mature, impressive uh, filmmaking that typically like, or or, not always. I mean, a lot of other movies do show, you know, it's like Cape Fear is actually a really good counter to that where you see, okay, the guy has the great career and the wife and the kid and 
the huge house and it's still like they have a ton of problems. They're, you know, not working through them and they keep kind of like, you know, causing their own sort of uh, uh, chaos within these situations. But it's uh, I always like when movies can kind of delve into that stuff where it's not just like, oh, you get the money, you get the, you know, the the significant other and then you know, the kid, and then your life is perfect all of a sudden, because it, it, it really never is, you know, it's like whatever, you know, benchmark you hit along the way, it's like, I'm sure all of us have had these things where you're like, oh, if I just get this, then I'll be happy and all my problems will go away. And then you get those things and they don't fix your, your, your problems. You know, it's like your problems evolve into something new. Because suddenly you're like, oh, I need to maintain this or I need to keep this in order or, you know, there's like or this thing could leave me. And there's just a lot of um, there's a lot of rich thematic material to mine from that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really think it's impressive that uh, Donald Campbell kind of went that deep on a on a movie like this. Uh, That's that that's like a really fascinating draw for me as well. Does Paul have some kind of powers? What he does, he keeps doing this kind of sound thing, where he like hums really loudly. Yeah, I think it's like to let it echo through. Yeah, because obviously, like just for clarity and for color, um, we get the like the job that he's doing is he's he's kind of like he installs high end sound equipment. Yeah, he be- he actually he builds a kind of bespoke sound systems. And he's um, but he's also like a, yeah, complete audiophile. And yeah, when he goes into places, he kind of makes this noise that kind of echoes around. And then he just... Well, yeah, it's, I believe it's to like test the acoustics in yeah. there to kind of like figure out where the best place to install it is. It, you know, another <laughs> guy you guys should... Speaking of audiophiles is uh, Graham Resnick. You guys should totally oh, yeah. have him on this. He's he's like the craziest audiophile I've ever met. He knows more about sound than like anyone I've ever met. But like getting into that world is almost like learning like brain surgery just because there's so many crazy depths and just like intricacies in that world and like all the high-end equipment there's just so much stuff that goes into it that um you know i think i think for me where i I don't have like a huge interest in a lot of that stuff yeah Yeah, um you know it's like it's really fascinating to hear these guys just go off and all the technical aspects of it. Like I, I, I'm all the other thing too, is I always really like in movies when someone's an expert at something, even if they're like an expert at churning (laughs) butter or like, yeah, your vulcanization or something. You're just like, Oh, that's really cool. Like they (laughs) dedicated their life to this thing and then they became really good at it. And you know, they're, they're, they're an expert in their field. It's just, it's always fascinating to me, whatever it might be. That's a good show, actually, because the 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 scene where we're properly really introduced to Paul, or the, I think the the scene where you learn the most about him early on, is when the first time you see him kind of making that noise and talking immediately about where he would put everything and stuff like that. I thought that was a really endearing introduction to a character for precisely that reason. Absolutely. I mean, it's like he does come off as as likable in this movie i mean even after like a lot of the like really reprehensible stuff he does he's still sort of charming in a lot of the the scenes you know like uh adam wingard is like also a a huge fan of this movie but you know it's yeah it's easy to see there's definitely some bits from this that i i think they they you know took inspiration for from the guest the guest yeah because there's stuff with Dan Stevens in that, you know, when he's 
chasing you know the 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 brother and sister through that maze at the end of the the movie uh, at the end of the guest and it's like he's still sort of likable even though he just like murdered you know their parents and he's like he's complete psychopath like he's still charming and the same thing too with um uh david keith like when he's uh you know like during the big explosive climax there's a bunch of stuff he says where it's like it's sort of funny and like just charming and he just has this like kind of light view of everything going on around them you know and it's like it's weirdly endearing. Like you're not supposed to like this guy, but you you still kind of do in, in some I, some ways. Yeah. I love when we're introduced to David Keith in flashback when he comes out and he's got that insane mullet and that big, <laughs> the big enormous <laughs> necklace that he's wearing. Yeah, it's like I can't. Remember, is it like shark teeth that he has, or it's not? It's um, it's like a really <laughs> thick leather thong with like. Uh, some kind of like, shells or like stones yeah like, yeah it's like it's really like pointed kind of like teeth looking things <laughs> that are that are around his neck it's just it's such an insane design like the whole look, the whole look is like, an insane design I, I, oh, yeah. I felt like that was like deliberately designed to timestamp the flashback i think so yeah but like um we've we've kind of pulled away from it a little bit but see we were talking about the you know the the flashbacks Jackson you mentioned the flashbacks to the hunting trip that uh Mike and Paul, Paul go on. Yeah. Um I to begin with when they started showing these kind of like very kind of very brief and kind of fairly inconsequential seeming flashbacks to the hunting trip I was like what are we doing here? And I thought it was kind of cool that by the end, obviously, it became the main vehicle for charting his kind of descent or what you understand about him. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's a lot of this movie, to, to be honest, that I, I've had. I Part of why I've rewatched it so many times is like I feel like there's sort of like a there's a deeper meaning in a lot of it. And it's really intrigued me. And so uh, there's bits where I've like gone back and like rewatched certain scenes and just, you know, I've, I've seen the movie quite a number of times at this point, but, um, you know, it, it's just, there, there's so much to kind of like glean from it. And I, it, it's nice too, that it's like, you know, you can watch it 10 times and you won't have all the answers. Yeah. I, I, I think your, your assessment though is pretty spot on mm-hmm. about, um, you know that that kind of charting his 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 character arc of the movie. Yeah, and I think it's kind of cool the intervals that you're kind of fed those scenes, and then obviously the last one is just Bumpers. flat out insane. But <laughs> like, but but where it's placed yeah. in the kind of escalating chaos of the rest of it, I think it works quite nicely. But the fact that he was a hunter kind of leads to him being pegged pretty quickly as the prime suspect in this certainly this original murder. Um, which he's approached by Detective Mendoza, played by Art Evans, who was in Fright Night as well. He was mm-hmm. Detective Lennox in Fright Night. He seems to know pretty quickly, <laughs> or certainly feel pretty quickly, based on Paul's past. They kind of look yeah. at him and they're, they're pretty sure, pretty quickly, that Paul's their man. Plus, there's uh, some tire tracks that kind of correlate. Um, that's a good character moment, yeah. actually. See, when, when Mendoza, Mendoza's talking to Paul for the first time, and, and I think he's he's trying to get in to install something next door to where the murder is is that right yeah. and then mendoza's talking to him and they have what starts off as being this very amiable conversation and that becomes kind of really accusatory and really kind of harsh very abruptly very quickly um, yeah un- undoubtedly i mean yeah it's uh yeah it- it's a weird thing too because you know 
one of the things I've kind of found out through like talking to lawyers and other types is it's like they can actually know when someone is guilty. I mean, obviously not in all cases, but there's a lot of like there's there's a real like burden of proof you kind of have to put on someone in order to get them to nail them as guilty. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like there's so much stuff that can just be inadmissible because they're like there's like a simple explanation for why they might not have done that. Like, for instance, if you're like, oh, they sent me this photo and that's like clearly not the person's hand or something. And like this other hand is is like, you know, has um, this like scar on it or something. They'll be like, oh, well, maybe they put like, you know, some kind of makeup over it. And that's why the scar isn't there. The and it's like there's just stuff like that where suddenly they're like, oh, because they might have done that. Now it doesn't count. It's interesting to me, like how kind of difficult it is to like prove someone is is guilty with uh, with these things. Um, yeah, the whole beyond reasonable doubt thing goes quite far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's right about this point that one of the more bizarre scenes in the film comes round. Um, it's when Paul is tasked with going round to fix Anne Mason's satellite. Yes. <laughs> Anne Mason is quite the character. She, <laughs> she's not backwards and coming forwards. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and we we turn up at Anne's house to find her wearing a negligee, a fur coat, a gigantic diamond necklace, and drinking a martini right in the middle of the afternoon, <laughs> living her best life. Yeah, strong yeah. like strong attire for a Tuesday. I feel. Yeah, well, it's I mean it's it's an interesting window into kind of like what this era was because yeah. I remember being a little kid and the way her character looks there is like how I imagine grown-ups looking you know or it's like grown-up <laughs> women because it was just it was like during this time I mean like I I, I was a, a little too young I think when this movie came out but this look sort of like extended to maybe like 93 or 94 you yeah. know but it was just like women just looked like that. You know, it's like they'd be like these like career women and they would just have like that. They'd always be like done up like that. And I'm sure a lot of that was from like movies or or TV or whatever. But it just was. Um, yeah, it just was like very stuffy, very like, you know, like big shoulder pads, like yeah. the whole crazy, you know, done up hair or huge hair or <laughs> whatever it, it was and it just um yeah it formed a really interesting sort of image in my head and now that you know i'm like i'm in my 30s and seeing that i'm just like god like no women dress like that <laughs> like, i mean like maybe if you're like a united states like senator or something you might but yeah, it's like i just don't see any women dress anything like that she's she's just a totally fascinating character and it's just this weird sort of like bored yuppie housewife thing is just getting drunk and you know kind of like fooling around with his character and it's, it's just so not just his character so she fools around with more than just his character <laughs> uh, no, no, no totally but i mean it's like it's just it's um i i i, I, don't, I mean i've met a few uh like uh, you know previous job i had you know the I, i'm not gonna say who but the the wife of uh the, this guy i worked for was not that dissimilar from from this character. Okay. <laughs> so it was. It was just. Uh, yeah, it's 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 very uh, it's very interesting to me. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, she, uh, what I particularly love is that she's so overtly sexual, but they're having this kind of humdrum conversation about the satellite. The whole, and yeah. She, she's just like, she's just rubbing herself up again, up and down him, like kind of like a bear scratching himself on a tree. She, she's like yeah. rubbing herself all over him <laughs> while they have this weird conversation about the state of her satellite. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Absolutely. And then she, yeah. Like, then she does that weird thing where she climbs up on the coffee. Like he kind of spuns her advances a little bit. Not immediately, to be fair. Not immediately. He does. He does kind of engage a little bit. Let's be quite honest. Although he's trying not to, he's cheated several times in this scene. I think that's fair. Um, but, oh, yeah. Absolutely. But he kind of goes to leave, and she does that. She climbs up on the coffee table and hikes up her negligee and shows him something. In our nether regions. That was the work of a Cuban boy. That was the work of a young Cuban boy. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you yeah. care to speculate, but I, I'm, I'm, thinking, <laughs> I, I'm thinking... I'm at a loss on that one. I'm thinking either a tattoo or some kind of pubic topiary. Excellent use yeah, of the word topiary. I, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it's you, the, your mind can certainly wander in a number of uh, directions there, but... Yeah, I I, yeah. Think, I think that functions better as an un, un, as an unanswered. I do question. have to say, no matter what the situation down there, you shouldn't really have a young Cuban boy doing it for you. Um, yeah, no, it doesn't yeah, seem appropriate. But um, it's an interesting one though. Like that scene, that scene is interesting because, like you say, I mean, we've con- we've all kind of come to some consensus that Paul's cheated there, oh, most certainly. And yeah. again, but like you say, I mean, at the end, like I tend to like I can write characters off for that in films sometimes. For their moral choices. Yes. Okay. Like I'm just like, I'm just like, I'm just like, I'm just like I don't like that guy anymore. But like what you're saying, Jackson, like like Paul stays at least halfway likable all the way at the end, regardless of kind of the descent that you see, but also the kind of like shaky moral decisions and ethical decisions that he makes along the way. Oh yeah, yeah, and I mean it's it's a weird thing because it's like I don't think you're supposed to like agree with what he's he's doing no you know it's like it's never presented as like oh he's like a total stud and like look how (laughs) cool he is you know it's very much like he's making the wrong decision but there's still some aspect of him that is uh, likable or at least like you can kind of like empathize with in a weird way and i i think in stark contrast his friend who, you know, was kind of like, he got, you know, jilted by the Kathy Moriarty character. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it's like, I actually think he, he comes across as much more unlikable in, in the movie. And it's like, you don't... Uh, I, Mike, I'm not Mike. Sure. Yeah, yeah, Mike, yeah. Yeah, Mike. Certainly, yeah, yeah. And- certainly in the early running, he comes across as more unlikable. He becomes a bit more of a kind of figure of pity when we kind of see him again in, the, in the, the now, if you like, rather than in the flashback. Yeah, and it's um, yeah. I mean, it's definitely weird that he's still hung up on you know this girl. Yeah. However many years later from from that, where you're like, okay, there's something wrong with him too. <laughs> but toward the end of the movie, when he's getting into when he's like going and like seeking revenge and trying to help her, it's almost like she doesn't want it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and there's something fascinating too with with that just with like the the different relationship dynamics where it's like you can have someone literally ready to murder you and you're still loyal to them yeah (laughs) it's like you're like oh you almost murdered my my our our daughter 
and you know uh and and me and all this but it's like she still feels you know like uh, something for him sure, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. uh it, like it, it it's just it's a very kind of mature look at these like dysfunctional abusive relationships and uh you know very true to life but she she's not particularly nice like to him when she meets him again and kind of behind his back she's really nasty about him because he offers her some homemade peanut butter which is weird um, yeah, <laughs> and she she yeah. kind of knocks it back, and he's st- he's absolutely obsessed with hot chocolates, you sexy thing. But, <laughs> but then she's away, she's away, kind of bitching about him behind his back. Because in fact, Mike says, "Whatever you do, don't tell Paul that you met me." And in the very next scene, she tells Paul absolutely everything about the whole exchange. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, um, it, it's, I, I don't want to get off on, on too much of a, a tangent here, Fine. but I mean, there's, um, you know, a couple of friends of mine, like an, a, a writer, director, friend of mine, they were in New York recently, and um, they, they were, like, meeting at a cafe, and outside there was this woman who was, like, arguing with her boyfriend, and the guy, like, went and, like, it, like backhanded her, like, in the middle of the street, Fuck. you know, and she... And they were like, whoa, what the fuck? And so they like went out and and were like, they were like, dude, get the fuck away from her. Like, what are you doing? And the guy started coming in on them. And the girl was like, no, just leave him alone. Like, like, you don't understand. Like, you're making things worse. Just like, leave us alone. Just let us like finish this. And they were like, lady, like, you need to get the fuck away from this guy. And, you know, they ended up, um, Basically, I think like the couple somehow like ended up getting away from them, and you know it. it, it but I was like, that is insane. This guy like l- literally assaulted this woman in in like the middle of broad daylight on you know a busy street, and she's still loyal to the guy. You know, it's like to the point where she's arguing with these total strangers who are like trying to you know take uh, who care about her well-being more than he does you know and it's um it's a very real thing but you know it's uh it's it's fascinating yeah i just want to touch on the next murder scene just quickly yeah 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 i know we have kind of touched on how horrific the the drowning scene in the bath is and it is um but the lead up to it is is the best thing ever it makes me laugh so hard every (laughs) single time when the killer comes sweeping, or Paul, I might as well just say it's Paul at this point, we know, comes sweeping into the room and delivers what I don't think is un- could unfairly be called a tombstone pile driver um, <laughs> <laughs> onto, the, onto yes. the bathroom floor. We, when we, when we, we watched this together and we both shouted tombstone pile driver when it happened. Is that the the Undertaker's move? Yeah, yeah it's the Undertaker. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I I haven't watched wrestling in a really long time, but I, yeah, I remember that being his like. Uh, yeah, the thing where he like puts you between his nuts and slams your head <laughs> into the ground. That's uh, it's pretty brutal. It's a uh, it's an interesting choice. Uh, it seems <laughs> yeah. like it would be easier to I don't know like candlestick or uh, just something that you've got to hand to deliver a, a pile driver seems quite. I I enjoyed the spectacle of that moment. In oh no, no, it's definitely a spectacle. Um, oh yeah, but no, but like but like I mean obviously off the back of that. Um, it's a, it was a dark moment anyway, but knowing what we know and what you've told us, 
obviously way darker. Yeah. But um, yeah, the drowning in the bath thing is probably it's the moment in the film that got under my skin the most by a margin. Oh yeah. Well, it's also too. It's like it's such a nasty, like cruel way to murder someone. Yeah. Where you're fully like showing them. A, you're dying and like like almost like turning it into a joke on some level. Yeah. And it, it's just it's like an unbelievably cruel uh, murder, you know, and I mean it's it's I think it says a lot about his psychology that he did that to himself basically. Mm-hmm. Um or or you know coerced his his wife into, you know, shooting him, but yeah, you know that that was a real that that scene very much like struck a, a chord with me because I was like, okay, this is this is very different. This is not just the standard like, you know, they shove their head underwater. Or you see the like struggle, like the water splashing around, and like you know they do all the frenetic kind of mm-hmm. quick cuts over it. And instead, it's just very deliberate, very slow, very like he's very much enjoying watching her die, you know, and it's. Um, yeah, it's it's very kind of mean and yeah. and twisted. And the visual for us, the viewer, I mean, it's very stark, very brightly lit scene, very colourful. Uh, it's a really yeah. colourful bathroom. It's well, and it's it's like at like two in the afternoon, also. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's not like a like a spooky nighttime thing. It's like no, it's broad daylight. You know, oh, no, all the is, light is coming in. This is a guy yeah. who does his killings by uh, by daylight. He does his killings straight after lunch. Yeah, I don't think any of the the yeah none of the murders really take place at night in it, which no. is also mm-hmm. um, kind of interesting. Yeah, it's it, very rare. I mean, I'm, I know there's like other horror movies and slasher films where, you know, the murders take place during the daytime. Um, I can't think of one. Ex- I mean, I know Sleepaway Camp 2 has a good number of them that take place during the day. But um, but yeah, it's, it's a super bold choice. It's a great scene. It's followed by a scene, I think it's right after this, with a, it's something that just freaks me out because it's in such tight close-up. Is the the policeman flossing his teeth? See, oh yeah, for a yeah, the uh, for a long time. Yeah, but, that's another thing too. It's very rare you see characters flossing their teeth in in their movies. Like you see them brushing their teeth yeah. all the time. But yeah, it's another it's another one of those things. Like it's it's just sort of a rarity to to find that. I think all these things are designed very deliberately to be unsettling. See all the because there is a lot of real tight close up stuff. There's another one like this, um, and it's a little bit later on, but uh, you know how one of the bodies has been like wrapped up using that wire. Yeah, it's like a, like that plastic ribbon stuff. Like. Yeah, like the exactly that. Yeah, at one point during the kind of police interviews that happened later, one of the guys, one of the investigators, is using that to dig dirt um, from underneath his fingernails. Oh yeah, and I felt the same watching that. As I did with the floss sequence, where I was like, "Why is this making me so uncomfortable?" It, I, I'm telling you, the big thing with it is like, there's so much of this movie that it just I'm not sure how deliberate a lot of it is. I mean, it feels very deliberate to me yeah, and very me yeah. you know, precise and and well thought out. But it's like it just comes from an unsound mind, you know, cool. and there's no way around it. And it's like this is not a movie that ever could have been made in like a real you know, studio system. And yeah, I mean, it's like this thing never would have made it past like getting coverage, you know, cause yeah. like you read the script and you're like, what the, f-? you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so it's, it's psychopath. And we're like 
kind of supposed to empathize him with it. And his wife is like still in love with him after he's done all this horrible stuff. And, you know, it's like there's so much on paper where people would just be like, absolutely no way we're making this movie. And, you know, to, to Cannon's credit, they, they did. I, I haven't read it's it's actually like based on a book and yeah. I, I think it's taken some pretty huge liberties with it. I, I haven't okay. read the book. I, I, I need to. But, you know, it's like he's a carpenter in it. It takes place in Connecticut. And, you know, there's like um, I imagine it's a very different um, uh, read than it is, a, a, a you know, a viewing experience. Yeah, I'd be quite interested to know, I think now. Yeah, I, I, I like I, I do want to know exactly how liberally this has been adapted from the source material. I think that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's it's not even called White of the Eye; it's called Mrs. White. Yeah, that's Mrs. Right. White. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. One thing that I think the film does quite well is that I think that obviously what you have there was this kind of like one of the more elaborate kind of set piece murders in the film. Yeah, and it comes pretty much straight out of that into some pretty heavy character stuff because you've got the police interviews. Yeah. And what you've got is Joan basically providing Paul with an alibi for one of the murders yeah. because she's basically, but she's also having to say in front of him and in front of the investigators that she it, she knows that he's done what he's done yeah. and he's had an affair and he's been doing what he's been like and he's been doing that and he's been um, and I think that's interesting. It's a really good scene. It's really well done. It's just like it's it's I love the fact it's so insular. It's in such a small room, but I think that coming out of something that's such an kind of horror set piece into something that is quite a subtle piece of character stuff is quite interesting yeah well it's it, it's also too it's it is a really complicated thing like i i don't want to you know get into any of my own like weird dating history but you know no 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 I, I i'm not i'm not going to but i mean like there there is times where it's like you know there's certain people you meet and you're like okay, on paper, this person's perfect and they have like, you know, everything going for them. And then there's something where you get a little kind of restless or whatever with the, the relationship where it's like, for whatever reason, your your interior doesn't totally click with, with theirs, you know, yeah. even though it's like they can be attractive, have have a good career, be like a kind person, smart, you know, have everything going for them. And then there there's these other times where it's like you can, you know, meet someone who you know, like is, you know, you can introduce them to your friends and they can be completely insane. And your friends are like, oh, my God, what do you see in that person? And you're like, no, they're great. Like that. And it's like you can have a tendency to kind of overlook a lot of the the stuff about them that you don't like because these other elements work for you for whatever reason. Yep. And, you know, it's like I think we've all sort of been in relationships with someone where, you know, our friends kind of arched an eyebrow at at, at them, where they're <laughs> like, um, you know, the, this this person seems to have a severe drinking problem or, you know, is like a, a huge drug addict or has, yeah. you know, a wealth of emotional problems or, you know, is mentally unstable. Who knows? Like, I, you know, not ne it's not necessarily any of those things. Like you're reading my online dating profile from when I was. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I mean, it's. It's also it's like we're willing to go a lot further for for those types. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like this is, you know, assuming you don't go to therapy or something to handle those things, which uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of everyone doing um, <laughs> to like not be in like self-destructive, horrible relationships. But, uh, you know, it, it's 
it's fascinating to me that, you know, there's so many people that I've met, you know, who, who fall in with these things. And like, I've met, you know, there's other women I've met, I've, I've, I've met and have been friends with that very much would date a guy like Paul and, you know, just they'd make excuses for everything yeah. they've done, yeah. you know? And it's like, it's not all like, and by like, I, I'm also, you know, <laughs> very conscious i'm not speaking that every woman does that not by a long stretch but there's like a handful of girls i've met you know who have you know been attracted to these types and men the same way where they're attracted to these just destructive yeah um kind of abusive personalities and like they just blame themselves for everything that goes wrong in it and we'll we'll cover them to the ends of the earth sure. you know even when it's clearly not in their best interest and they're all, all actually like putting themselves in in danger mm. so yeah the, that was that was a huge huge digression but i wanted to touch on that yeah do you think that's an element of what's what you're seeing happening here like in this scene yeah I, absolutely because like she's still angry at him which mm -hmm. you know is normal and, and human, but there's a, there's a deeper thing that when, you know, you're getting questioned by like a detective and they're like, uh, Hey, we think your husband has killed these people. You're like, Holy shit. Like I'm getting the fuck away from this person. Like there's something very disturbing and wrong here, which I think would be like a, you know, the same person's response. But you know, she goes in the exact opposite way, even though she kind of knows he did it to cover for him. Well, I mean, because so, this, yeah, it's because it's, it's, it's this kind of like emotionally confrontational thing between the pair of them, between her and him. But also she knows that in kind of forcing this confrontation, she's also kind of exonerating him, at least in the short term. And I think yeah, that, it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. But, but no, sooner, yeah. no sooner does she do that than she happens upon his stash of uh, liberated body parts which he keeps under the bath yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> good, scene. good scene good scene so she finds Absolutely. out almost immediately after getting him out of police custody that he is in fact the killer yeah because he's got him in that like weird tank or what whatever it is like, i i, I... I don't know how to describe. Yeah, you the, guys know the, what I'm the talking about. The bath is kind of boxed in. It's kind of boxed in with like a wooden. Uh, it's kind of set in a wooden kind of frame. Yeah. And underneath the soap dish, for some reason, is where he's chosen to hide these items. Yeah. No. She no. She finds like a kind of loose kind of thread thing poking out, uh, and she pulls it, and it leads her back to the kind of soap dish, which she gouges out of the frame, yeah. and then she kind of lights a lighter and looks down there, and that's where she finds all the stuff. And then, the yeah. and then Paul loses his mind spectacularly fast. <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> uh, and on a massive scale. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, we're, we're at the point when he starts, you know... Do, did we go into, like, him, like, stabbing the, the bed and Well, well and no, that's, that comes up pretty quickly after that because the, she kind of barricades herself in a closet and he does, like, the Michael Myers thing and smashes, it, smashes the door down to get her out. Um, and yeah. then they have a weird... A weird sex scene. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's like it's it's like a, t a completely not titillating no, sex scene. Oh no, it's, it's, it's oh, it's like it's like unbelievably desexualized sex scene. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's just so functional. Yeah, exactly. Like you're literally just, and it's it's interesting too that they're able to pull that off without it being laughable. Because I feel like there's so many sex scenes. If you've ever watched any of them with a crowd. 
it like brings the house down because it's they just come across like very absurd and silly yeah, in, yeah. in a crowd. And this is just like, no, I'm extremely uncomfortable <laughs> during <laughs> during this bit. And um, uh, yeah, it's like they have that, which I also think is a great window into their relationship, you know, and then he stabs the bed to pieces. Yeah, he does. And tells her to clean yeah. it up. Well, and uh, sorry, sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. He said, the thing he says there that's always stuck with me after he goes completely fucking insane in that. And he's he's just like, you know, he stabs the bed, which feels like, you know, like 50 times or something. And he he turns to her and goes, clean up this mess. Yeah. And he doesn't say, clean up my mess, like, therefore not taking any responsibility for it. And just immediately puts it on her yeah. of like. I'm not responsible and now you have to fix this. Yeah. And that's another just great window into these these types of like abusers and just, you know, uh, like emotionally abusive stuff, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's it's just very real. And I mean, it's also too at this time I mean, like it just now feels like people are kind of starting to be conscious of that stuff on some level. And it's like to see them doing this, you know, over 30 years ago at this point is uh, hugely impressive. Yeah, that's true. In fact, like, you're hitting on something there that hadn't really occurred to me when I was watching it. But you're right. It's like, yeah, there's some pretty perceptive relationship stuff in there as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like that that scene is always like very much stuck out to me because it's it's also just it's so unbelievably cruel. And it's like. Not only that, it's like there's long-term effects of that. I mean, apart from the psychological ones of like, he literally just destroyed the bed they sleep on every night. Yeah, the marital bed. To, yeah. to make a point and to like humiliate her and like force her to do something she shouldn't. And that, you know, he'll ultimately like blame on her. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like you made me do this is like what is the underlying subtext to that scene yeah yeah that's it that's that, that that's how he kind of signs off from that isn't it and then he gets madder and madder and makes himself an explosive vest yes and yeah, like things it, things escalate very abruptly from here <laughs> yeah 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 and so it's like he builds a, a vest made of dynamite and you know paints himself up like you know like a samurai warrior yeah that's right and like yeah. does his air hair and that like kind of like samurai like ponytail style thing and yeah it's just super fucking eerie seeing him take that turn you know and because it just ha it just snaps you know and it's like there's a lot of people i know you know who've been in those relationships where they talk about suddenly it was just like the wrong thing was said or something and the person just turned a it was like there was like another face revealed where suddenly they were not the person that they they knew and had been dating and like this sort of monster just shows up and, and appears and um you know they have the whole bit with her getting locked in the uh, you know that the attic and uh, I, I don't know if I'm getting too far ahead. No, fine, no, fine, no, no. no. Something that tickled me. Yeah. Um, something that tickled me just quickly was um, Danielle has to kind of save the mum and get her out of the attic room, and she says, yeah. she says, uh, was it something like Dad's wearing a bunch of hot dogs?" 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I have. I actually have a, an amusing aside to take away from all the you know sort of uh, uh, grim real life stuff we're talking about. Uh-huh. But uh, when they played it at the um, the silent movie theater, my friend Phil told me there was a, a some some dude I think came up. And was like, oh, yeah, that scene where he's, like, wearing all the hot dogs is crazy. Like, he didn't realize, like, that was dynamite. Like, he <laughs> as, as, like, oh, he's, like, wearing a bunch of hot dogs. Which I was like, I don't know how he thought all these hot dogs, expl- you know, explode later on. But uh, <laughs> Which would arguably be even more insane. No, totally, totally. But it's, yeah, it's, like, it's interesting seeing that filter through, like, a child's mind of, like, Oh, he's wearing a bunch of hot dogs. Oh, you know, and it did also remind me of that scene from The Simpsons when Principal Skinner is like, "I have a bomb, and it's armor hot dogs." <laughs> <laughs> what kind of man wears armor hot dogs? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's genius. I, I I did not make that connection. That's fucking hilarious. Oh, I did that immediately. No, but it's like, uh, but yeah, no, you're right, and it's. This yeah, this is in the middle of what I would say is like an unbelievable, like an unbelievably sharp escalation of the kind of drama and just driving this thing towards this conclusion. It's like they get to the bit where he, you know, she jumps out the window. Yeah, um, yeah, Dan- uh, Danielle is kind of Danielle jumps. At, her mom is like, just jump, like get just the fuck out of here, throws it and into like this, throws it into some bushes. Yeah, and like drops her, and she's just like run, you know, and then. He, he 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 like knocks her out of the way and then is like loading up the rifle and like aiming at her he's like run danny and just starts like shooting at her and it's just it's such a fucking terrifying insane thing that he's like telling this to this poor girl and prompting her her to like run for her life while he's like trying to just fucking shoot her and, mm. and kill her it's an interesting insight into how far off the deep end paul is at this point as well because like when uh, joan had tried to call her friend to take danielle out of the situation you know come and get danielle because she knew that this was going to escalate and then when she calls back to say that she can't do it paul takes the call well, yeah. and he yeah, turns right and he turns around and gets furious being like oh um uh i can't believe you thought i would hurt my own kid and then yeah. literally you're five minutes later in the runtime and he's just like fighting indiscriminately at her while she's running down the road and it's like at that point i was like okay this guy is off book yep Cuckoo. Oh, totally. Cuckoo. Yeah. But yeah, it's fascinating, too, because there's also, there's there's an interesting thing about people being like, oh, I could never do that, and admitting that, and then you see them doing that same thing later on, you yeah. know, through, like, whatever the, the circumstances. This is a bit of a tangent, but uh, did you guys see Super Dark Times? Yes. I saw it. Yeah, it's on Netflix over here. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that movie does a really good job of showing the kind of like slippery slope you can get to like being becoming a, a, a murderer, you yep. know, and it's like, see how that happens. You're like, oh, my God, what a horrible accident. And then you're like, oh, that maybe the guy liked it. And then you're like, oh, OK, now this is now this is very different, you mm-hmm. know? And so it, it's like, you see that the escalation of that stuff, but yeah, that, I just wanted to make a quick aside about that. That's not, that's, it's a, it's a pretty good parallel to draw. That's a fucking great film as well. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we're kind of coming down to the end now. Yeah. Yes. Kathy Moriarty, she escapes, um, hops in the car and takes off 
towards the quarry yes um, which presumably is quite close by i think that like when it becomes like the car chase and the standoff in the quarry i think it's like it's still okay but i think that in terms of tension the stuff in the house works way better yeah i well i i i agree and i do think you know the ending turns into something very different this is very much like an atypical climax because in a bizarre sense Kathy Moriarty is essentially like the one we're we're, we're really empathizing with Mm -hmm. and that we're in her shoes. She's still kind of rooting for her psycho husband and like feels all this grief and pain. And like, you know, when he gets in that that fight, you know, with, um, uh, you know, Mike and he gets shot and he's like she's like, oh, do you want me to shoot you? And he's like, oh, why? Why would you do that? Like. You know, and it's like it's clear he's probably like paralyzed at that point. Yeah, you know, he, he and gets she's shot. Like, he gets shot not just a little bit in the legs. He gets shot a lot in the legs yeah, with like, a very large yeah. machine gun. Yeah, it's. I mean, the thing is like a fucking like you know like a military yeah. you know machine gun they'd use to like you know take out like a, a fucking jeep or something <laughs> you know and you see this and it shoots and, his fucking legs yeah and it's like and you like can't move clearly <laughs> and there's also there's another interesting you know deeper parallel there where his wife who he co-wrote this movie with donald camel you know she's like asking like oh do you want me to shoot you and oh my god yeah. shooting him later hell. on in real life you know and it's like to not it, that's one of those things like I've always kind of remembered that during that scene and he's like oh why would you want to do that you know and he's sort of making a joke of it in a weird way and he's like mm-hmm. still sort of superficially charming and he gets to that bit where he is he's about to just blow up his his vest with like he's like oh I want to smoke and he had I, I I I'm I'm sort of like forgetting what the exact sequence is but he ends up like grabbing him and lighting his his vest up, he you sneakily, know, and... he sneakily lights his vest. Yeah, conversation. He has his, he's kind of has his hand behind his back and lights the fuse. Mid conversation between Mike and and Joan. Yeah, and so you know he lights it up, and then the guy like Mike quickly realizes he's going to die, and then and uh, shoots him. Like, <laughs> or I mean, I'm sure to the point of of killing him before the you know the bomb goes off. Oh, he's, he's like aiming at his head or whatever it's like i'm sure his head was a fucking stump you know (laughs) like they they cut a you know i mean it's like they don't show they show the gun going off but it's like very clear how insanely powerful that gun is oh yeah like he's he's blown his head clean off his shoulders you hear a lot of a lot of gunfire as well he fires a lot of rounds into him uh, yeah, and it's like that. That's the kind of thing where it's like you, you know, those those types of guns. If you've if you ever go to like a shooting range, I mean, they put the hole of like it, it like it'll be like a coffee can size hole in you. You know, I mean, that's like fucking gigantic. You know, it's um, it, it's crazy. But anyway, he uh, you know, he, he fire he he lights that up. There's a massive, insane explosion. And a normal she bomb. She jumps. What's that? And a normal bomb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, um, but you know, she jumps in the water and like they cut, you know, they cover it from so many different angles. Like there's like a helicopter angle and <laughs> all these other things. And it's, it's, incre- it's like a magnificent sight to behold. It's very impressive. And they have this huge operatic music swelling in the background during it. But, you know, it was, 
it's like you see her jump in there, she escapes, and then, you know, we cut to that that scene later on where she, you know, she's talking to the the detective, mm-hmm. um, that the dude from Fright Night, and um, she's like, oh, 10 years, gone with the wind, and he's basically like trying to kind of minimize the sort of uh, experience. I can't remember what his exact line is. But yeah. Oh, yeah you know, is, it, like, is, it not, is it not like, what's 10 years when you're in love or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he says, what, what is 10 years when you're in love? And it's, I was like, it's a, such a bizarre sort of like theme of the movie of like, oh, who cares if you're in this nightmare, horrible relationship, as long as you're in love during it. Yeah. And it's like, no matter how abusive the person is and how unstable and psychotic they are, if you love them, it's okay. It's totally fine. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like, it's like in complete opposition to basically like everything else kind of like leading up to, you know, the, that point in the movie. And then they end with, uh, you know, she like looks over her shoulder and they do that, that kind of like dissolve or, or that, that still of her. Yeah, that's And weird. then they, they a... start with that. That end theme, which is, uh, uh, I love that end credits music. I think it's just haunting and and beautiful. But yeah, I mean, they give a little like kind of caveat of like, okay, life goes on and she still has her kid. And, you know, like she'll she'll be fine by movie standards, I guess. But (laughs) yeah, it, it was just it's it's such an odd scene to cap off the movie it's 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 a really really strange end scene and i honestly don't know if i think that it's a good or a bad or a strange decision or what it is but i think that like as a (laughs) as as, as a final scene i mean like like i say i only saw this today i'm still processing a lot of this and um yeah like uh, it's a really strange sign-off uh scene i'm not sure how i feel about it (laughs) It's a strange yeah, choice, but absolutely. nonetheless, nevertheless, that is the end of the film. That is how it ends, um, and you, there's no getting away from that, Mitch. Um, yeah, and um, I mean, like Jackson, this isn't this is a really interesting selection. And what I would say is, after about maybe forty minutes of it, I said to Andy, I was like, I without saying anything about where I came up pro or con in the film, it's like I'd really like to know just like why you picked this, and it's interesting to me that you came across it later, that you came across it in 2015. Yeah. Because most of the time when people come on here and they choose films, um, it's something that they've had a kind of long-standing connection. Maybe they saw it like when they were too young to really have seen it. You know, like somebody saw something that would be like an 18-cert film. They saw them, they saw it when they were 10 for whatever reason. And yeah. you're, they're telling a story of something that is this kind of like deep-seated childhood affection for a film, which I think kind of colors your judgment and you can't really be objective about it. When you have this kind of nostalgia, you can't quantify the reasons why you love something and it makes it hard to talk about it and hard to defend and hard to speak about it in a way that's grounded. So it was interesting that you brought this to the table as something that you'd only seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, you know, it, it's interesting to me because a lot of the, I, I did one other podcast that was, that was a little similar to this. And I think I'm, I'm spacing the name of it right now, which I got, I hope the guy does not listen to this, uh, this episode, <laughs> but, but like I, we were talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which is a movie I've, I've like had a soft spot for for a very long time. Okay. A lot of it was because it was the first horror, proper horror movie I ever watched. Mm-hmm. And it, it made a huge impact on me. But, you know, it, 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 it was it was interesting with this because so many of the I'm sure most of the movies are exactly what you guys have said, where it's like someone, you know, had an affinity for a lesser loved movie when they were younger because yeah. they caught on VHS or on cable or whatever. 
it hit him at the right age and it's like forever kind of coated in amber as this like wonderful sort of cinematic experience yeah. they have which but you i i don't take anything away from any of those people like what like you know your favorite movie could be you know neil breen's fateful findings or something or or you know just some something that's like widely or you know from justin to kelly you know (laughs) (laughs) like like if you had a great experience with that when you were younger and like that's an important movie to you then fine like you should keep that like i don't i don't think people should be convincing others that their tastes are, or, or it's like, if they like that, that's fine. You know, it's like, you might not agree or whatever. And like, I think it's worth having a discussion over certainly, mm-hmm. but like, I, I, I don't, you know, like try to like lord anything over no, no. someone for liking something. I don't, yeah, you know, I, mean, I try not to anyway. Yeah. I, I like understanding why people love things. And I think that if I don't, I certainly, I think the two things that I like to do is I'd like to understand why, this thing that I don't get means so much to another person, but I also wouldn't dream of condescending to people for liking it for whatever reason they want. Exactly. But no, I mean, so much of it was just, it it resonated with me because of the era that it was made, the location, and just how deep I kind of thought a lot of the the character stuff was in it, which is, you know, I, I don't think it's unusual for a genre movie, but it is unusual to see it presented in this way. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I do think a lot of genre movies are very smart with like the thematic underpinnings of these movies and what they're trying to say. And, yeah. you know, there's some incredibly brilliant genre filmmakers who, you know, have not gotten their their appropriate accolades because just still, even though horror is hot right now, there's so much of like the mainstream public that just. You know, it's like you tell them to watch a movie like Phantasm or whatever, and they're like, oh, whatever. Who you know, it's like yeah. they they can't, you know, like look deeper at it being like, oh, this is sort of like a metaphor for this kid's grief, you know, over yeah. like losing his parents. And there's all this kind of smart stuff baked into the, the film. But, yeah, you know, it just it, it had such a huge effect on me because of the way it's photographed, like the, the actors. I think they're all like. You know, the D- David Keith and Kathy Moriarty are phenomenally cast in this. Yeah. Like, I, I truly, I, like, I could maybe see like Jeff Fahey playing, you know, his his role. But apart from that, or, or like Brad Dourif or something, but okay. he yeah, yeah. just is so perfect in this role because he really doesn't seem like he's a, like an evil guy, no, you know. No, no. And it's like, you know, it's like you look at him in Firestarter. Yep. And he's like the good dad in that. And he's like super loving with his daughter. And, you know, and you're like you're so on his side. and He's just so sincere and real. And, you know, like you really care about him. And seeing him in this where he just becomes this total psychopath. And there's still a weird level level of, uh, you know, uh, sympathy or whatever for the guy. It, it, it's just it's very impressive because it, it's rare that a horror movie can try to humanize the bad guy in a way that's effective, you know, because so much of the time they humanize like it's like, oh, well, humanize Leatherface. And then you're like, cool, he's not scary now. And I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Now I completely don't care. And like, this is just sort of sad. And you're like, oh, so he was picked on and has like this horrible facial disfiguration. Okay, I'm I'm really not afraid of him now. It's way scarier when he's this weird inbred redneck who's dressing up in you know like women's skin and you know like putting on an apron and like cooking for his family and just 
making all these bizarro sounds where you're like, okay, this is fucking terrifying. Like this Damn. is, you're like, if I saw this coming at me, I would run very far away versus the like, oh, this is really depressing and like <laughs> gave me too much of an insight into why they turned into a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, Some, definitely. Sometimes definitely. no background is better and scarier. Just Absolutely. something just exists. Yeah. And it exists in that state and we don't need to know anything other than this is fucking horrifying. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Mitch, come on. Are you going to come down with an opinion on this one? I am going to need a little bit more time to think about this one. There are a lot of things that I like about it, but I found, as a first watch today, I found it to be a really disorientating mm-hmm. and kind of <laughs> jarring experience. Um, what I, I would say I... is, I will 100% watch it again. Oh, great. Okay, good. Um, and like I say, the golden rule of these things it's becoming that is that I never come away from conversations like in a film less. I always come away more curious and wanting to know a little bit more about it. I will 100% re-watch um, White of the Eye. And I think that everything that you've said about it positively I agree with. Mm-hmm. But I found it to be, like, like I say, quite jarring, quite overwhelming. And I'm going to go and I'm going to have another go at it, I think. Because yeah. I, I, th- I came out of it not having disliked it, but I came out of it just kind of mostly just wanting to talk to someone who had chosen it for this. <laughs> yeah. Like, I like I just, I wanted to know more about it from the perspective of someone who obviously loved it. Um, before we go back to you, Jackson, Andy, you'd seen it before? Yeah, I'd seen it before. Uh-huh. So what was your take this time? Uh, my take this time, uh, I think the benefit of a little bit more age. And having um, seen more stuff. And... and having seen more stuff. I still find it to be quite impenetrable at points and a little bit inscrutable, but it almost defies that anyway. I think it's a really interesting film and there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on under the under what seems to be quite a confusing surface. Watching it again now, I feel I need to watch it again right away. Yeah, I think I think I'll watch it relatively yeah. immediately. Again. I didn't know any of the Donald Camel stuff and that's made me see the film in an entirely different light and it's made me pretty much transfixed by this film. <laughs> yeah, Jackson, um, that was a, that was an interesting insight and something that neither of us knew. So what what obviously what you told us and what we now know about uh, Donald Camel and um, how some of the kind of how some of the kind of weirdly specific darker moments in this informed real life things that happened to him and things that he did later. I feel like that alone kind of gives enough reason to watch this again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a big draw for me, too, because when I did watch it the first time, I was like, what is it? I was just so, like, blown away by it Mm because it was like, I've never seen a movie like this. And then I I got very interested in the the backstory of it and read all that stuff. I was like, okay, I'm watching this again right now, kind of like how, how you guys just talked about. And then seeing it through that way, I was like, whoa, this is a fucked up movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, On so many levels, yeah. Yeah, and I just kept kind of going back to it, and I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm always just very interested in those those movies that are uh, reveal like a deeper side of the the filmmaker. Like, you know, Vertigo is a, probably my favorite movie of all time, but mm-hmm. you know, like knowing all of Hitchcock's history with like basically trying to like remake these women into these things that are just this like kind of unattainable sort of like fantasy person and just doing that over and over again and like Mm -hmm. like literally having the person he wanted and went after her and forcing her to change her appearance and conform her into this thing she never was yeah it was always so 
resonant and like scary and and disturbing to me. He was like very vocal about that, you know, in interviews and stuff, I I think. And, you know, plenty has been written about that. You know, whenever you can get these kind of deeper windows into like a filmmaker's personal life, I just feel like it, it enhances the experience so much more. Definitely. Also, I feel like the film doesn't give a fuck if you get it or like it. it just, no. Yeah, it just exists as it is. Yeah. And you, I, can either, you can either choose to get on with it and try to figure it out, try to unravel it, or you can get off and yeah. fuck, fuck off. It doesn't seem like he cares. There's no... It's very unapologetic in its kind of eccentricities yeah. and its more impenetrable elements. And I think that I, I, always, I always think that films come off stronger for doing that. Mm-hmm. For being kind of, for being kind of, yeah, it's a kind of, it yeah. feels like kind of a fearless film because it is made with that complete lack of consideration for whether or not you get it. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Jackson, before we wrap up, I do want to take a minute to talk about a couple of things. Uh, most notably, uh, Beyond the Gates. Oh, right on. I just wanted to like to take a sec to just cover it, just for the benefit of anyone that's listening that might not have seen it or anything like that. So obviously, I'm um, so uh, we met uh, a couple of years ago when you took it to Fright Fest to Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. No, I remember at that uh, that weird bar right next to the um, that place in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, yeah, it was at the uh, Fright Fest after party. I remember it well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm not blowing smoke here. My affection for Beyond the Gates is well documented. <laughs> no, thanks, dude. <laughs> uh, no, it's um, it, no. I, I think it's great, and I think people should check it out. And as we spoke about earlier, as we touched on, it's um. It's it's billed as a Shudder exclusive. It's available on Shudder. And it's on available DVD. on Shudder, but it's <laughs> but it's also available on DVD because I do own a copy of it. As do I. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there like is there anything that you want like you want to say about the film to anybody that might not have seen it before? Maybe just kind of. Uh, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll just give the basic pitch that I, I I was doing before the the movie came out. But you know, it's basically like the movie centers around uh you know a, a pair of estranged brothers whose father has gone missing. They grew up you know, working in in uh, his video store. And um, after he's been missing for several months, they go to, to liquidate it. And while they're there, they end up finding a VCR board game that has something to do with his disappearance. So, I mean, it, it took a lot of influence from stuff like Phantasm and The Gate mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of films of, of that era without, you know, directly like left lifting set pieces and Basically, I, I, you know, the big thing with it was trying to tell a story like the gate with with grownups where they have these scars and just flaws and, you know, have been through like abuse and alcoholism and all these, you know, like making bad decisions or getting caught up in bad relationships or bad friendships and seeing how characters like that would react to being able to cross over into another dimension in a spooky haunted house story, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. so um <laughs> Check it out if you haven't. Um, I, I'm still just absolutely like thrilled with the you know the reception of it and that you know people have kept watching it and you know I mean I've had I've had people who've like written to me where they're like oh I've watched it 18 times which is insane to me it's like it's a huge compliment but it's just it's a thrill so I mean I, I always get a, a I'm always like very flattered and very touched to hear that you know it it had a, a nice effect on someone so so yeah thank you for the kind words that's no, cool i mean i i like the fact that it kind of uh for the first little while it kind of it almost has this kind of mumblecore feel and it kind of <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it, kind yeah, of, it goes in a very weird it, it's like it was very deliberately <laughs> like split in 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 half where it kind of builds to you know there's some spooky stuff but it's very much not structured like the 
familiar. Here's the big opening scare. Here's this. Here's like the set piece every seven minutes. And it takes a pretty hard right turn at the midpoint, you know, after being sort of a family drama and turning into something yeah, uh, pretty pretty different. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, um, I, I I like the kind of how did we get here feeling that you get when it gets to the third act. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, just but just before we wrap up, first off, is there anything else project wise you want to talk about? And also, how can people catch up with you, social media wise, and so on? Uh, well, I well, I like I'm off Twitter right now because it's it's just been it, it's become like very toxic. But we yeah. have a you know we have a Beyond the Gates Twitter that uh, Steve, my co-writer, r- runs, which I suggest following that for like any future you know career stuff that we're doing. But yeah, I'm working on a movie called The Day After Halloween right now, which is sort of like a sort of like a post final girl movie. It goes into some pretty weird directions that we haven't really seen before. And, um, and like one of these horror movies that almost pushes into kind of like a metaphysical sort of like Jekyll and Hyde direction. Um, but we're, we're casting that right now and just sort of putting that together. That's next on the docket. And then I have, I have some other stuff that I'm just pitching and working on that are in, you know, various stages of development, but yeah, day after Halloween looks to be the the next one. So hopefully we should be filming that, you know, in October and, uh, then get it out into the world and go from there. Super. Cool. Jackson, thanks a lot for taking the time. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. This thank you, man. So one of the more interesting ones, I think in terms of like, I still don't know what I make of this film. Right. What do you make of this film? Like I say, I kind of like it. I find it unsettling, and I find it even more unsettling now that I know the thing about Donald Cannell and, and China Kong. I think if, that... if anything else, I'm completely, completely intrigued by this film now. I I feel like I need to see it again. Uh, no, I think I need to know more about it in general. I need to know the film. <laughs> and I think as well, I mean, like this is why letting the guests choose the film, I think, is important, because people are coming in picking something they inherently they love that mm-hmm. they have looked into and that's and this is why we can kind of stand to learn these things from these stories because sure. the people that are coming on know their stuff and they're able to offer up this kind of thing and i think that that's interesting and i thought jackson did that really well tonight he yeah absolutely like, mm-hmm. I, I took a lot away from tonight's conversation also just really cool that he only found the film like two three years ago and it was the first thing that he went to i think yep. that's fun i like that a lot but you can you can understand what he said about um about people not liking the film Oh, absolutely. I completely <laughs> understand that. Because, like I say, there's a lot of things about it that I find quite jarring and quite uncomfortable. Yeah, but it doesn't sp- it doesn't spoon feed you any answers or it doesn't make life easy for you in the slightest. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's I, a good thing. I, I think, yeah, for the most part, I agree. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it definitely does apply here. But I guess that's it for another one. Yeah. So big thanks, as always, to everyone for taking the time to check us out. And thanks especially to Jackson Stewart joining us. For yep. us. And, uh, yep. Good, strong son name. Yep, strong, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Beyond the Gates, uh, currently available in Shudder and on DVD in the UK. Uh, get on that. It's a great film. It's mm-hmm. worth your time. We will be back this Monday, 8 yeah, a.m. BST, as we announce our guest in film for the following week. And also um, just all of the various features that we've loaded into the minisodes now. Yep, yep. We've got all sorts in there now. We've got the what were you watching? We've got the feedback section. Mitch's You're pitches. doing your Shockwaves 100. And of course, yes, yes, Mitch's Pitches. Mitch's Pitches, yeah. yeah. I, I love the fact they're becoming a show in their own right. A show in their own right. I'm enjoying yeah. that very much. Um, if you want to get in touch, if you disagree and think the minisodes we've be better off being six minutes long or if you want to say 
about as they used to be. <laughs> yeah, you can add to their former glory. <laughs> you can get in touch in a whole lot of ways. Facebook and Instagram, strong language, violent scenes there. You can tweet us at strongviolentpc and you can also, of course, email us at stronglanguagevioluntscenes at gmail.com. Yep, and of course, whatever you're listening now, there might be other avenues that suit you better, so you can listen to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. So that's it for another one. Join us Monday if you can, and in the meantime, don't forget that it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Good night. Goodbye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.